So this month, we're going to be looking at the authority of God's Word, the authority of God's Word. And uh, we're going to be looking today at its inspiration, but at the start of each lesson, we do have a video that we play. Do we have a video ready to go? No video ready today, so I'm going to act that out for you. Not really. We're talking about the authority of God's Word this month. And um, as we look at this, as we uh, begin to contemplate this, this is something that is particularly relevant for our time as the Word of God becomes under question more and more. Um, the Bible is inclusive, yet it's also exclusive. It does mention a way, in fact, two ways, a broad way and a narrow way. It does mention that it's open for all, but there will be few that find the narrow way. Uh, of course, uh, a, a phrase, if, if no one knows anything about Scripture, they do know that you shouldn't judge lest you be judged. Everybody knows that. <laughs> uh, and while we are not called to judge people, the Word of God does judge us. And it's important for us to realize that uh, when we stand before God, ultimately we will be judged by the Word of God. Now, I have opinions and I have thoughts and you have opinions and you have thoughts, but we're not going to be judged by those. Those will be judged, but they will be placed up against the authority of Scripture. And so, as we contemplate and look at the authority of Scripture, it's important for us to realize that while we can work through things, while we can have opinions, while we can have thoughts about things, that I've got to make sure that my life, my thoughts, my attitudes start matching up to what really matters, and that is the Word of God. And that's difficult because uh, they don't always match. I don't know if you've realized that before. Uh, I've, I've been in plenty of services and, and read plenty of scriptures where I realize um, that's not quite how I think. Um, we're going to start out reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 in verse 17. And it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So scripture, we have to decide, is given by the inspiration of God and not just scripture, but all scripture. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Even the list of genealogies and chronicles is given by the inspiration of God. I have to believe that first, and then second of all, if I believe that, I have to believe the second part, that it's profitable for me. It's profitable. So it's not a question of whether the Word of God applies to me. I have to figure out how it applies to me because I believe that it's all for me. It's profitable in several areas, but then the reason that we have Scripture, it says that the man of God may be complete, and this does not speak of man of God as in the preacher or pastor. This speaks to us who follow after God, male or female, that we may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work, that Scripture equips us to do what God has called us to do, that if I want to figure out what God has called me to do, I need to start my journey in Scripture, and if I want to figure out how to do what God has called me to do, my journey starts in Scripture, that it equips me to do what God has called me to do. 
A crowd somewhere gathers into a theater to watch a play. Just under the gathering noise, a merry old organ bounces out a tune. As the people take their seats and settle in, waiting for the curtain to rise, a white-gloved hand slips through the curtain and pulls it aside. And a clown emerges. First, a bulbous nose, then orange curly hair, and then parachute pants. He strides quickly to the edge of the stage, his floppy shoes protruding almost out into the front row of seats. A smile painted with diamonds and, and, and spades for dimples, he, they hide the look of agitation that he has. White paint runs down his forehead in streaks of sweat. He opens his mouth to speak but pauses and chokes at the absurdity of the moment. A fire backstage happens to be sweeping through the dressing rooms and roaring through the hallways. And he has escaped in time to warn the audience. Desperate to be heard, he waves his arms, gesturing wildly. With a loud voice, he cries, fire, fire, exit the building at once. And this confuses the crowd. Plays usually begin with an opening act. But this prelude seemed a little bit more different than what they were anticipating. So the crowd sits silently, trying to work out an unexpected riddle they thought was taking place, waiting to see how the clown, clown planned to build the comedy out of this strange opening announcement. Then remembering that this cry of fire is coming from a clown, a few, a few of the cooler Heads in the audience laugh, a little nervous laugh. Pretty soon as the little nervous laugh catches on, everyone starts to laugh and they let out a collective sigh of relief and join in with the laughter. Desperate now to be believed, the clown gestures more wildly and lets out a primal scream. Don't worry, I'm not going to give a primal scream. <laughs> no, I can't. But he gestures wildly and screams, fire, leave now. He runs from one end of the stage to the other, looking for a sympathetic face, someone who will see and hear the anguish behind the face. But the more animated he becomes, the more convincing he is as a clown, and the more the audience howls. On the fly, he tries one last strategy. Shifting into a sudden calm, he pulls off his wig, he pulls off the false nose and floppy shoes, and he takes the microphone from the center of the stage, tests it, and then as evenly and calmly as his trembling voice can manage, he says, ladies and gentlemen, there is a fire backstage. In moments, it will burn us alive. Please, everyone, listen to me. Leave it once through the exit. The crowd is back to uncertainty, a little bit disconcerted. The laughter subsides. But the same sophisticated people who had laughed earlier, wanting always to be regarded as the first to understand what is really going on, laugh again. But this time they do one better. They begin to stand and applaud this hilariously pathetic disassembled clown and proclaim, genius, genius, that my friends is pure art. The rest of the crowd fearing that they will be out of step with those that are fashionable, ignore every instinct they have and they break into forced laughter again and they stand and laugh and, 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 and clap for the clown and they rejoice in the artistry that the clown has provided. The broken clown holding the orange wig at his side, feeling the heat that will in moments engulf a crowded theater, droops his shoulders in awful solitude. 
This story, or one like it, occurred almost 27 centuries ago in Israel. There was trouble on every side. Assyria had uh, invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And they'd taken its people captive. Now, Assyria was in decline and, and Babylon, a new power, is rising to fill the vacuum of power. And King Nebuchadnezzar has turned his gaze toward the southern kingdom of Judah. Worse still, the land of Judah. They've had a brief reform under King Josiah, the eight-year-old king, but now they have fallen prey to paganism and idolatry one more time. And the prophets step on stage as the clown did in our story. The prophets. We tend to think of prophets, and when we think about Bible prophets, we tend to think of forecasters, of people that proclaim what will take place in the future, of proclaiming future events, but prophets, that was really only their secondary purpose. Really, their first purpose was about the present. It was about the present. It wasn't just about saying what's going to happen, but the prophet's job was to help the nation, was to help people understand the present in light of God's future decrees. That hasn't changed today. As we look towards our message today, we proclaim a message of the future, of eternity, of of where your life is heading, but it has to manifest itself in the present. Heaven doesn't mean anything if it doesn't change right now. And so the prophets were the same way. They were, even though they spoke of future things, they were more concerned about the present. In other words, the prophets' primary reason for talking about the future was to help people in the present adjust their life, to reform, to repent, to remain faithful to God in the present. In Israel, though, we know the history of Israel. They had a continual uh, uh, up-and-down relationship with God and with other nations and with other religions and idols. Constantly, they are going back up and down. And so whenever they would begin to start taking a casual attitude towards foreign cultures or foreign religions, the prophet was very often summoned by God to demonstrate to the nation where this would lead. It was to affect their present, though. When they began to ignore the laws of God, when mercy and justice began to leave the nation, when, when the common uh, themes uh, uh, of the economic policies were bribery and, and treachery, God would send a prophet to bring them back to Him. And the prophets were to be quite clear on where the nation was heading, where its practices were leading it, whether they were moral or religious practices that were falling by the wayside. And, and one of the most effective prophets... Some of the most effective prophets were those who made a performance out of embodying God's point of view. Different kind of person. Now, I didn't say lay in bed for a year. <laughs> he had to lay on his side in front of everyone. When he got hungry, he got to cook his food on his side. And when he had finally fulfilled God's word, God said, you've done a great job. And he begins to get up and God says, you know what? I think you just need to flip to the other side now for a while. Bed sores and all that. 
And he laid on his other side. He, God told him to shave his head and shave his beard. And he's like, oh, okay, I really don't want to be bald and beardless, but I'll go ahead and do that. And just when he thought, okay, that's not too bad, God tells him to take all the hair and divide it into three piles. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and there's, <laughs> well, I don't know if there ever was one guy, but there's always that guy who, as you're separating three piles of hair, wants to come along and blow on it. That seems like a pretty tedious job. But the point of all of these things was to act out, to give an illustration of what God was saying. When Israel would fall into these different uh, uh, times, when they would fall into these different ways, when they would go to foreign kings for protection, even though they were supposed to go to God, God would send these prophets. Another one was Hosea. Hosea was a prophet. Very unusual story. God tells the prophet to go marry a prostitute. That's a little unusual. I don't know if you think it is. I think it is. Hosea went and married a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. I'm sure there was plenty of talk. I'm sure there was a few people that had something to say about that. And, surprise, surprise, she left him for another man. Of course, I told you so was on the lips of everybody. And you know what Hosea did? He went and found her and brought her back. What a strange circumstance, but it was an illustration to God's people that this is how they had treated God, and yet God still reaches, and that message holds true for you and I today, that many times we look at that and think how strange that is, but then when we put ourselves in the place of Gomer, we realize how many times that God reaches for us, pulls us, draws us, and then we turn our back on Him, and yet He still continues to reach for us. I'm thankful for what God does in our life. That's real mercy and grace. But the Word of God, when it would grab a hold of these prophets, we're talking about the inspired Word of God. When it would grab a hold of these prophets, we read about Amos. It, it, it arrested the entire prophet. Amos, in fact, he goes, he was just a shepherd and God speaks to him and he goes before the king and he begins to prophesy and people start making fun of him saying, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And Amos says, you know what? I would rather not be doing this, but God compelled me. There was something about his word that drove me. I would rather be back in the fields, but see, when the word of God came to them, something arrested not just a piece of the prophet, but the entire prophet. The word did something to them. It did something. Now, we could call that by a variety of different things, and perhaps we may know it best, that feeling of being grabbed a hold of God, of being arrested by God. Perhaps we would call that conviction today. I don't know if you've ever experienced conviction before, but where it seems like God just grabs a hold of you, and you realize that this is not just something little, but this is something that is going to require me to do something, to change, to be something else, because of the Word of God. It's an inspired Word. The Bible is not just a book. It's not just a book. It's not just something that I take to church. Now, I, I realize um, that I don't open my Bible when I'm up here very often. I have scriptures in my notes. And in fact, the only reason I bring it here is just and set it up here with me is just in case my mom would walk in unexpected. I still have my Bible up here. 
But it's not just a book that I carry to the pulpit so that people are maybe a little more comfortable that I've got some Bible. It's not just a book that I carry to church so that I can get points in Sunday school for bringing my Bible to church and get an extra sticker, although that's important too. Those stickers are important. It's not just a book of wise sayings. Now this is where we start getting into our culture today. It's not just some good teachings, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. It's not just a book of short, pithy sayings that is a a good way to live your life. It's not something that is beneficial to us if we just follow, that it, it helps us be a nicer person. That's not what, it is the inspired word of God. And unless I view it that way, it will be less than what it needs to be in my life. And if it's less than what it needs to be, it will do less in me than what it needs to. The pages of the prophets are full of images of seers, of uh, of people relating to the Word of God in ways that strike us in the modern time with absurd literalness. They would eat the Word. They would digest the Word. They would wear the word. They would dream the word. Once the word came, their lives became that word. It was a fire inside of them. And every part of their lives was used as a kindling to feed the fire until they were spent because of the word of God. And see, this is a key thing that we have to realize is that they did not just believe that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. Of course, they didn't have Scripture. They were hearing the Word of God and penning it. But they did not just believe that the Word of God was inspired. That is very important. You can't go anywhere unless you believe that first. But it was more than that. It wasn't just an inspired Word. It inspired them to do something. And see, that is the point of Scripture. It is not just given to me as an inspirational word. It is given to inspire me. That's how it completes me. That's how it perfects me. That's how it equips me to do what God has called me to do. And that the word should inspire me. The prophet Jeremiah is an interesting character. A very melancholy fellow. Often called the weeping prophet. Just pull it together, man. Dried up. But no prophet really paid a higher price for declaring the word of God than Jeremiah. When Jeremiah prophesied, kings and priests scoffed. Religious leaders scoffed. The people laughed at him. The kings didn't like him. For them, really, hearkening back to our story at the start, Jeremiah really was an unpatriotic clown. He appeared on the stage of Israel, or of Judah, Right at the end, in fact, Jeremiah is the prophet who sees Babylon capture Jerusalem. He is the prophet that is there, who is the last one proclaiming, if you don't turn, this is going to happen. And he sees it happen. He sees the prophecies come to pass in 586 as Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. But he appears on the stage as the unpatriotic clown, waving his arms, screaming fire, and everyone thinking, my, what a show. In fact, people thought he was dangerous to national morale. He prophesies to the king in the temple, and the king, he's he's given a scroll written by Jeremiah, and he burns it because the words frustrate him so much. He can't stand what Jeremiah has to say. He 
prophesies about the destruction of the temple. In fact, he says that it's pretty much almost too late and that God's glory has already departed the temple. Now that's pretty strong words. When you walk into church and tell people, hey, by the way, God's not here. (laughs) You're not feeling God. Everything you're doing is just a form and a fashion. You're just creating an emotional high. You're just creating a feeling. He tells them, all that you're doing, God's not even in it. Makes them pretty unpopular. He says that God has left Jerusalem. In fact, there's really not much they can do. The Old Testament prophets often prophesied of doom, but they had never, as Jeremiah suggested, surrendering to the enemy. Jeremiah says pretty much there's nothing you can do. In fact, you should just go ahead and give up. The prophet's job, the people thought, was to be an encourager was to be an uplifter, to speak of the invincibility of God, how the temple could never be destroyed, how God's house could never be taken. And yet Jeremiah came in proclaiming all of these words that were contrary to what everyone thought. He was, as true prophets usually are, out of step with popular movements. He was out of step with popular movements. The false prophets, they put their finger on the pulse of the nation felt the pulse and then called it theology. And that seems, well, what does that even mean? Well, the New Testament describes it and says in the last times, there will be people that just have itching ears. Itching ears. An itching ear, man, that's an annoying thing. Ever had an itching ear? I won't ask you to demonstrate what you do to try and itch your ear, but it's like it's down inside there and you're like going nuts trying to get inside there. They have itching ears. And here's the amazing thing. That's a dangerous spot to be in, but there's people that are willing to scratch their ears. (laughs) Now that, yeah, my ears itching is one thing, but don't come and scratch my ear for me. But there's people that are going to be willing to speak words that appease people. In fact, today, that, that has taken place in every society and every culture with Christianity is that there are people who... Say good things, but all they're doing is appeasing people. Because you know what? If all I ever hear is that God, and and, and that's what the people thought. The prophets should only come and uplift and encourage, talk about how great God is and that his kingdom will last forever. And any words contrary, they thought, man, I don't want to hear that. But God's word is not just there to encourage and lift me up. Sometimes God's word means I need to change. And a lot of times when God's word comes and it tells me to change, I don't really feel that comfortable. I don't know about you, but I've had God's word point out things in my life that were extremely uncomfortable. I've had God's word come into my life and speak to me, and it's crossed things I've even said before. I'm like, oh boy. This isn't just I need to be nicer to people. This is the whole way that I thought about something is not correct. That's not a comfortable thing. But there's going to be people that that are going to just go along with popular movements. They're just going to go along and say what people want to say. But you know what? It's important that God is allowed to speak into our life, that God is allowed to let His Word come into our life and do something. 
Very often what happens is that as people turn away from God and and they walk away from God, and when I say walk away from God, I don't mean just turn their back on God, but I mean turn their back on a God who can make a real difference in their life. Let me just say it this way, a God who requires change and they don't want to change, and so they look for something else. Paul says that there's going to be people that come and preach a different gospel. Now that's a little strange there too. Because they're not coming and preaching, let's all worship the devil and drink blood. I don't think Paul would have called that a different gospel. That's just weird. He says a different gospel. So that tells me there's going to be bits and pieces that sound right. And in fact, if you look the way that Satan operates from the Garden of Eden on, he doesn't come in and try to convince you to sacrifice goats and leave horses' heads on people's front doorsteps. Or whatever other weird things you want to do. No. He starts out with little deceptions changing things it sounds kind of right and it says there's going to be people coming in and there's going to be a vacuum that's where it happens is that people as they don't hear what they want to hear a vacuum is created and people begin to fill those roles but all of their things to do all as these other prophets begin to step in in Jeremiah's time there was prophets all over but all they managed to do was prepare the people for peace now let me tell you I, I mean I don't want to hear bad things. I don't want to hear that. I don't want people to come in and tell me bad things are about to happen in your life. Who wants to hear that? Ooh, I've got a word for you. Now, this is what I want to hear. Money is coming your way. You're going to open the mailbox. There's going to be a check there. And your prayers are going to be answered. And this is going to happen. That's, that's the word we want to hear, right? Jeremiah, and there was prophets that were doing that. They were, Scripture says in Jeremiah, they were proclaiming peace, peace. Oh, that's good. I want to hear that. Peace, oh, prosperity, oh, that's wonderful. And here comes Jeremiah saying, no, that's not going to happen. You're all going to be taken captive. The temple's going to be destroyed. You're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your kids. You're going to lose your house. I don't want to hear that. Get out of here. I don't want to hear that. And the the prophets are saying peace when it was a time of war. They were talking about uh, uh, all kinds of things that, that that were not true, but people wanted to hear that. And Jeremiah got tired of it. He says these things and nobody wants to hear him. Surprise, surprise. Nobody wants to hear bad things. And so at one point he decides not to even speak anymore. Here's an attitude that's common today. He was going to live and let live to each his own. That's an easy thing to do. Well, everyone just, you know, you do your thing, I'll do my thing. But you know what? If the word of God is in me, the the word of God should inspire me it should do something in me where I'm not comfortable just letting people live and let live because there is a truth there is a right way there is a God there is salvation there are you see this is the fruit of what we really believe this is the fruit and and scripture is very clear if you want to tell what someone believes and how they think and how they look at what they do well, I believe in heaven, I believe in this, but you know what? Everyone can just do whatever. You know, that's, that's just, they can do whatever. That's fine. That doesn't mean that we go out and start judging people. That's not what I'm talking about, but there is truth. 
and I'm called to proclaim truth. And Jeremiah said, you know what? I'm tired of doing this. I'm tired of saying things and nobody listening. I'm tired of saying bad things when people are saying good things and all they want to hear is good things. But he couldn't control the word of God and what it did inside of him and that he allowed the word to continue to stir inside of him to the point where scripture says it was like a fire shut up in his bones. And, and he realized that if I don't say what God has called me to say, it's going to burn me from the inside out. You see, the reason why the fire was in him is because he's the one that needed cleanse first. Jeremiah, the one time he comes into the king, he comes in, he's, uh, he, he's really the prophet that started this uh, illustrative ministry. The, the, he, Ezekiel comes after him, but Jeremiah kind of started this. So he comes walking in and he's got this wooden yoke on his neck. He's walked down the street with his yoke on his neck. Oh, excuse me. Oh, oh, sorry. Knocking people out of the way. He gets to the king's court with his yoke on his neck. And he walks in there and he says that, man, bad things are happening. There's a yoke put, put upon you. That he, he comes into the king's private council meeting. The doors fly open and there's Jeremiah with a yoke on. He says, I've got a message from God. And he says, you know what? All of you are going to come under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. I've he said, God has appointed Nebuchadnezzar for this hour. Man. Now, we could get real political here. Think, think about the politician you like the least. Think about them. And then someone comes and says, God has appointed that person to rule. And again, we're not talking about ruling like they do in America. This means they got total control of your life. He comes and says, Nebuchadnezzar, God has appointed Nebuchadnezzar. This is the person that everyone's scared of. They don't want anything to do with. He's evil. He's horrible. They sacrifice all kinds of weird things. And he says, God has appointed him. And he says, you're going to die. Your family's going to die. Man, what a great prophet. He says, you're all going to be taken as slaves, those who aren't killed. Don't listen to these lying prophets who are trying to basically medicate you into sleep. And he wore that yoke. He wore it, some people feel, for as long as a year and a half. <laughs> Walked around every day with this yoke on, demonstrating. It leaves an impression on people, of course. They think he's a nut. There's another prophet that shows up, Hananiah. Hananiah shows up. And he approached the king... And he uses the yoke of Jeremiah as well. And he makes a promise. He comes in and he says, you know what? Jeremiah's right. There's going to be bad times. But in two years, the yoke will be broken. Now, that's what we want to hear. Now, if there's going to be, if there's going to be trouble, we want to hear the victory on the end, right? Jeremiah's like, no, it's all bad. It's all bad. You're all going to be slaves. You're going to die in slavery. Your family's going to die. Your cats are going to die. The dogs are going to die. There's going to be... There's not even going to be hot water for a shower. There's going to be nothing. Nothing. It's going to be an awful, awful time. And Hananiah says, you know what? That's going to happen. But God's going to come in when the enemy comes in like a flood. In two years, he's going to raise up a standard. And people are like, "Woo! I can take it now. All right? Jeremiah hears this. And he's like, hmm, I'm just going to leave it be. Something starts burning inside of him. Hmm, just going to leave it be. No. Before long, he comes out, and he, Jeremiah was sarcastic. 
Now see, I think it was divine inspiration sarcasm. Divinely inspired sarcasm. And he comes across and he tells Hananiah, he says, Oh man, that's a good word. Oh, amen, brother, that's good. Oh, I, I receive that word, that's good. But see, Hannah, he's making fun of the prophet. He's making fun of him because it's not the word of God that's been spoken. Now, I'm not advocating that you go make fun of people who... I'm not saying that that's a good practice to have. But the prophet Hananiah has come saying all these things, and Jeremiah says, you know what, you are wrong. This is not correct. And in fact, Hananiah gets to the point where he's like, man, I, I'm not going to deal with this. He takes Jeremiah's yoke off his back, and just to get it, make his point even stronger, he breaks the yoke and says, this is what God's going to do. He's going to break the yoke. And Jeremiah says, no, no. It's not going to happen. In fact, Jeremiah goes to him and says, because you have spoken this word just to please the people, he says, you're going to die here before too long. And two months later, that guy was dead. He was doing it to receive the applause of people. But there's a difference between saying what people want to hear and letting the word of God flow through you. You see, comforting a people that's idolatrous, comforting a people that don't have truth is pointless because the word of God is not here just to comfort but it's here to change and challenge and transform you. Jeremiah learned that when the word of God was in him, it was something that caused him to speak, that he could not maintain silence. The word held in creates discomfort. When the word challenges me, and I don't do what the word challenges me to do, it will create discomfort in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but at times when I'm not comfortable, that can kind of show. I don't know um, if, you know, we, we have a, a son. I'm going to talk about the older one. Who's going to these youth events. They get done at god-awful hours. The Lord's paying me back. And you know what? He'll get to bed at 2 or 3 in the morning. He'll go spend the night somewhere and he'll be up all night. And of course, that's a great thing. I was up till 4 in the morning. You just, you know, we're of the age, that's just dumb. That's dumb. That was cool at one point, but man, seeing the sunrise, because you've been up all night, that's, forget that. But the deal is, when he comes home and he's been up till 3 in the morning and then woke back up at 7, you can't allow your discomfort to affect all of us. That's your problem. You're mad and grouchy. Don't take it out on us. And sometimes things that are uncomfortable, you got a sore back, you got something bothering you, sometimes that comes out in your words and your actions to other people. It just does. Now, let me tell you this. Sometimes the reason people are the way they are I'm saying everyone, but just think about this. Sometimes the reason people are the way they are is because they're doing that spiritually. They're spiritually grouchy because they're not doing what God has challenged them to do. Scripture is very clear that what's inside will come out. If you are holding back what God wants to do in your life, if you are quenching the Spirit of God in your life, if you are not doing what God has called you to do in your life, that's not just going to stay in your life. It's going to come out in your actions because the actions that come out are... 
you know that you're not doing what you need to do. And that ticks you off, and it comes out, it's ticked off at other people. Because the Word of God is a fire inside of us. And that makes me uncomfortable, because you know when you're not doing what you need to be doing. You know when you haven't changed what God convicted you to change, and that will demonstrate itself. It's not a bad attitude that you've got a problem with. It's not doing the Word of God that He has spoke to you that's your problem. And you can pray against your bad attitude all day long, but all you need to do is start doing what God has called you and asked you to do or change in your life. Scripture is a two-edged sword, piercing. And you know what? Sometimes when that word pierces us and we don't respond to it correctly, it just leaves a wide, gaping wound. The way to heal that wound is to do what the word says. And until then, you've got a wound that's festering, basically. You've got something that's not right inside of you. Because the Word of God is to inspire us, to challenge us. The Word is sovereign, but my ear is subject to me. Just because I hear the Word of God doesn't mean I'm going to do the Word of God. But Jeremiah gives us an example of somebody with a real struggle. Jeremiah is a prophet that we really know the most about his life. And, and, and the reason why is because we get insight. Jeremiah writes about those struggles that he has with doing what God has called him to do. That he's sitting in prison. He's, he's sitting in a pit and he tells God, this is where your word brought me to. I'm sick of this. I thought, man, I was going to be doing all this great stuff. When you called me as a prophet to the nations, I thought, man, I'd be traveling all around and evangelizing and people would be getting the Holy... Not really, it's in the Old Testament, so they wouldn't be getting the Holy Ghost, but they'd be getting something. Instead, you sent me with a message that nobody wants to hear and they threw me in prison and I'm down here. It shows the struggle that where we think we may end up through the call of God and what He tells us may not be where we end up. But still, there's something that burns inside. There's something burning inside of him. And eventually he comes to the conclusion that I can't help but do what God has called me to do. I can't help but speak what God has called me to speak because there's something inside of me. It's the word of God and it's inspiring me to do something. Again, the question is not whether the word of God is inspired. The big question is, is does the word of God inspire you? It does no good to hear the word of God. It does no good to read the Word of God if there are not identifiable changes in my life. What starts changing is when I hear a message and then I think, how can I apply that tomorrow? What does that mean for me tomorrow? How does that change my attitude to this person? How does that change my actions to this person? It's because the Word of God should do that in my life. Here's the problem we all have. We all know we're not perfect. We all know that. We just can't think of how we're not. We just, we just can't figure out the word applying to me to change me. But when the word of God is delivered into our life, no matter how it is delivered, I've got to make sure not only that I hear the word, but I receive the word and it does something inside of me. The parable of the sower, the word of God is sown. There's people that receive the word of God with gladness. Oh, they're so happy they run the aisles. That was the best service we ever had. That was wonderful. That was fantastic. I haven't heard a greater word in all my life. And what happens? Jesus says those are the people that's like the seed is cast into the rocks. And it grows a little, but then it can't take root. No, he wants good soil where something changes, where something happens, where people walk by 
and they see a field. They know that something has happened. They know that there's been watering and planting, and and they know that something is going on there. I want people to see my life and realize, not that I'm a good person, but that God has done something inside of me, that he has changed my life, that there is something different, and then they ask the reason for the hope inside of me, and I tell, see, that's how that works. But people aren't going to look at rocky ground that's got stuff growing here and there randomly and dying here and there all over and say, man, I want that. It's not enough to receive the word. It's got to take root in my life. It's got to do something inside my life. I've got to read the word, listen to the word with humility. I've got to accept the word into my life with humility. We finished talking about Jeremiah. Jeremiah fell out on a stage with a message he wished he didn't have to share. The audience stared on at him. They stared at him. You know, when we receive a word from God, we, we don't see people just staring at us. When God says, I want you to do this or I want you to do that, we see people rejoicing and joining in with us, not staring at us like we're a raving lunatic. They were expecting something else, a more respectable act than Jeremiah provided. Crazy guy walking around with a yoke on his shoulders for six months. But while you can choose your response, God chooses the prophet. So to their foolish eyes, Jeremiah wore the the trappings of a clown. A wooden yoke, a potter's wheel, a tattered garment. He talks about a boiling cauldron, a basket of figs. He purchases some ground for, and, and it's worthless ground, but God tells him to buy it as a symbolic act. He writes a scroll and it just goes to feed Jehoiakim the king's fire. Jeremiah opened his mouth and announced that destruction, a fire was coming, but the leaders laughed, the nation laughed, the rest of the crowd joined in. The more earnest he became, just like the clown in the opening story, the harder they laughed, the stranger they thought he was. In fact, the prophet gets to the point, again, we read more about Jeremiah's inner thoughts than any other prophet. The prophet sighs. In fact, it tells us that he cursed the day he was born, just like Job. He wished his mother's womb had become his tomb. He wished he'd never been born. That's pretty bad when you're following God's will and it takes you to a place where you know you're following God's will and you just wish you hadn't been born. He was caught between the people he loved and the God he obeyed. And as the distance between God and these people grew... The mighty act of trying to hold on to both pulled Jeremiah apart. So in a fit of rage, he accuses God of deceiving him, of making him a laughingstock. Translation of deceive might not be quite strong enough. Really, the idea of seduced might be closer to this meaning. Enticed. You've drawn me in. I didn't realize what was taking place. In Jeremiah chapter 1, when God calls Jeremiah and says, I I knew you when you were in the womb. I formed you. I created you. I'm going to make you a prophet to the nations. Wow, that's powerful. The calling, man, that's something that you can stand on. And Jeremiah got to the point where he didn't even think he could stand on that. He says, God, you deceived me. You deceived me. The deception lay in these early expectations of Jeremiah. God had told him, That he would be as impregnable as a bronze wall. 
that he would be a fortified city, that he would be unmovable like an iron pillar. And he went forth believing that, you know what, nothing's going to happen to me. I may face things, but I'm an iron pillar. He assumed this degree of protection, dignity. And in this sense, Jeremiah was seduced to take the word of the Lord to go forth triumphantly. But after the priest beats him, wouldn't that be fun? You go to church and the preacher doesn't preach to you, he beats you instead. He spent a night in stocks, realized that he spent days in the pit, and he realized that the only people who would really benefit from his prophecies in the immediate present were the enemy. That's it, the Babylonians. What Jeremiah did not know when he first started prophesying was that God never allows his prophet to speak of others' pain without him feeling some pain first. The New Testament says it this way, that we might know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Jeremiah tried to dam up the word of God to maintain silence, but somehow the realities of what he was to say just kept inside of him. It was no use. The word of God was so strong inside of him because it inspired him. He was held in a power of something bigger, of a God that was bigger than anything else. And even though he went through moments where he tried to suppress what God wanted to do, there was that fire burning in his life. Jeremiah died in obscurity, probably died far away in Egypt, but his prophecies lingered. The fire shut up in his bones. It went from city to city. His prophecies went from nation to nation. They went throughout time to us today. The names of the detractors, you probably can't even mention his enemies now, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, Pasher, Hananiah. You probably don't even, have never even heard of some of those names because they're forgotten in the face of the word of God. But we still know Jeremiah. Because it turns out that the fire of God that was inside of him, that was pushing him, that was driving him, is also a fire that preserves you and I. You see, the word of God, yes, it's inspired, but it is inspired to inspire us. It is given to us to ignite a fire inside of us. And that fire, even though it may take us to paths that we did not imagine, even though it may take us to places that we didn't expect, even though it may give us words to say that aren't the most popular words, there is something inside of us that burns from the inside. And we understand that that's the word of God. That's the power of God. And it consumes us, but it preserves us as well. Because it's in the fire, he still preserves us. The word of God needs to inspire me in my life. I need the word every day. I need the word inside my life. I need to change. I need to become more like him. I need to be equipped to do what God has called me to do. And instead of looking everywhere else, scripture tells me where I need to start that journey is in the word of God. The challenge is not just to believe the word of God is inspired, but let it inspire you on a daily basis as we stand today. My prayer is that there's people in this place that the word of God starts burning in just like Jeremiah. That it makes you uncomfortable, that it drives you until you have to do what God has called you to do. 
Because I can hear the word all day. I can receive the word. I can, I can get it from, I can listen to YouTube. I can go all kinds of places and find the word of God. But unless it is doing something in my life, unless my life is being conformed to the word of God, it's doing me no good. I pray that a fire burns inside of each of us that inspires us to do what God has called us to do. Let's join together in prayer. Lord Jesus. We come before you thankful for your word. We know it's inspired. We know it's divine. We know that it's profitable for us in our life. And I'm thankful for your word that we can stand on, that when all else is shaken, when everything else is torn down, what will remain is your word. It is truth. But Lord, I pray that we would realize the word is given to me for a purpose. It's there to strengthen me, to encourage me, to lift me up. But Lord, it is there to transform me as well, that your word has transformative powers, that it should change my life, that it should inspire me to do what you have called me to do, to be who you have called me to be. And it gives me the tools and the power to do all of those things, God. I pray that your word would change me on a daily basis, Lord. I believe you and trust you and thank you for the power in your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for being here in Sunday school today. We're going to be starting our main service here in just a few moments.